Good morning. To all of you here in the worship center, those watching the live stream now or the recording later, for any guests here or online, a special welcome to you. My name is Steve Winkle and I am the Director of Community Connections and Outreach here at Ivanrest and occasionally I am blessed with the invitation to preach when Brandon Hahn, our gifted pastor and preacher, is out of town. To help the members who know me well to see me as preacher when I'm up here rather than outreach guy, I usually part my hair differently. <laughs> Again, if you could pause for the jokes, considering the possibility, that would be, I would appreciate that. Um, now, any guess you'll probably recognize me uh, next week. This is pretty much it. So, Our text this morning uh, is from James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26, and in your pew Bibles, it's on page 978. Before we explore our text, uh, a little background, the author of the New Testament book of James is... And right now you're thinking, let's see, Matthew is written by Matthew, Mark by Mark, but Titus by Paul, Philemon by Paul. James was written by James. But likely not the brother of John and son of Zebedee, uh, who is one of Jesus' disciples. Instead, most scholars believe that this James is the son of Mary and Joseph, likely their oldest together. So the younger half-brother, of Jesus. Did any of you grow up in the long shadow of an amazing older brother or sister? Did you ever say to one of your parents something like, well, he or she is so perfect, I'll never be as good as that? Picture that conversation 2,000 years ago from James to either of his parents. And how would Joseph or Mary answer? Well, you're right, James, uh, Jesus is perfect and you will never be as good as that, but do your best, uh, and out goes James. John tells us in his gospel early on that James did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but that changes later. Paul reports that James saw the resurrected Jesus, and he calls him a pillar in the early church. And James then serves as a key leader in the Council of Jerusalem. Multiple scholars report that James dies a martyr for his faith. With that, let's look at our text. And you can see the source of my stolen faith and deeds title for the message in your NIV Bibles. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says... To them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. 
and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without, work, without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Before we dig in, let's call your right hand faith. You see the faith hands. And your left hand deeds, hold them up. And on three, bring them together. One, two, three. I always wanted to do that. Uh, 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 try again. Okay, faith deeds. One, two, three. Nicely done. Now, uh, please place your left hand, your deeds hand down on your lap. And with the same energy, let's do a one-handed clap. And with half the hands, I'm pretty sure that scientifically, and this is a vast, deep science mind right here, we should get about half the volume we got with two hands. Okay, so right hand, here we go. Ready? One, two, three. <laughs> you guys cheated in church. That is so wrong. That is so wrong. Um, all right. Put your, this is going to fail miserably, but that's okay. Let's try it. So put the right hand down, and let's try the one-handed Deeds, clap, one, two, three, go. One hand, without the other, unless you cheat and use your neighbor, um, does not work very well when it comes to clapping. And James believes uh, the same is true for faith and deeds. He writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. These first verses make me think of one of Jesus' parables. Remember the Good Samaritan? In Luke 10, we learn that a teacher of the law asks Jesus how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus responds with another question, asking him, what's in the law? The teacher knows the answer, as Jesus knew that he would. The man says to love God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirms his correct answer. Then the man asks, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of a man attacked by thieves and left naked and half dead on the side of the road. Two religious men see him and pass by, evidently with better things to do. And then a Samaritan very sacrificially helps him. Jesus then turns uh, the neighbor question around on the teacher of the law, who realizes that being a good neighbor has very little to do with anyone's position in life, but very much to do with what he or she practices, what he or she does. And he correctly answers that it's the Samaritan who is the neighbor. And Jesus concludes, go and do likewise. James says that if someone has no clothes or food and others only wish them well, what good is it? When Francis Chan preaches on this passage, he says that the contrast is not between faith and deeds, but between living faith and dead faith. Faith with action is alive, a two-handed clap. And faith without action is dead, a lot like 
a one-handed wave. And right now I'm guessing that some of you are thinking, hey, wait a minute, we're not saved by our good works. This substitute preacher is forgetting something very important. What's the key word we're missing? Grace. And by the way, the reason that Martin Luther was not a big fan of the book of James uh, is related to that. He called it the epistle of straw because he thought it was at least a little thin on presenting the full gospel. I wonder if James has since let him know in heaven that God inspired him to write only this portion of his truth within the full framework of the New Testament. Just have fun fathoming the conversation um, between James and Martin Luther. That's a good one, I'm sure. But back to grace. Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Yes, we are saved by grace, the amazing gift of God. But what he do, by what he does and not by what we do. Remember the criminal, criminals on the cross and the one who repented and believed in Jesus? How long was he a Christian? An hour? Maybe two? But ever since, by the amazing grace of God, he has been together with all the saints in heaven. But look at what Paul says next to the Ephesians. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Once saved by grace, do we have God's permission, God's blessing to be his frozen chosen? Does it make sense that we could receive the most amazing gift and then do nothing or very little? Or worse, that we would choose to mock the gift by choosing to live selfishly and sinfully with no regrets? In Romans, Paul asks, should we choose to sin more so that grace abounds even more? And he answers his own question with a resounding, no, you are the very handiwork of God. Paul tells the Ephesians and us today, now go and live like it because God made you for relationship with him and to do the good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. Tim Keller was not discounting grace when he tweeted this. We are saved by faith alone apart from good works, but not by a faith that remains alone without producing good works. In our text, James continues with these two verses. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith and without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Demons believe that God exists. Demons know that God is all-powerful. So every human who believes that an all-powerful God has existed for all of time has that in common with the devil and his demons. Demons also know that their best shot at winning was the death of Jesus. And about 36 hours later, they realized they lost when he overcame death itself. So now they know that they are on the eternal losing team. But in the meantime, they fight to make Christians as ineffective as possible. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If humans insist on believing in God, then it is the hope of hell and its occupants that our faith remains inactive. Like James, Lewis concludes that faith without action is not worth much and has little impact on the world. 
And if you are someone with physical or other limitations, or you know someone with physical or other limitations, this message is in no way condemning any of you or them. Some of the most powerful people of prayer, some of the most encouraging and inspiring people of faith are people who struggle to move or process information well. But they are incredibly faithful to the good works that God has prepared in advance for them to do. Some of you know the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. The narrator uh, is Screwtape, a veteran demon who advises his young nephew, Wormwood, on how best to combat Christianity, including this statement. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well, up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and more amusing. Yes, as soon as he lose our souls to Christ, the devil's goal is to influence us in a variety of subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways to be as unexcited and ineffective as possible. Maybe with the goal of being as comfortable as possible, as often as possible, to support a very moderate, lukewarm Christianity. To illustrate this, please cross your arms in front of you. Now cross them the other way. Anybody have a hard time even crossing them the other way? I tried yesterday, I could not do it, but I figured it out. Why do you never cross them that way? It's not comfortable. How many of our first world problems are related to comfort? I heard someone say the other day that they might get a new phone because this one was not comfortable in their pocket. Has your microwave ever had the audacity not to heat your food sufficiently so you have to wait another interminable 30 seconds for it to reach its optimum temperature? Have you ever driven a quarter mile to get a parking spot one row closer in the store? Has Amazon ever completely lost their way and made you wait 48 or even 72 hours instead of 24? Sometimes it takes Google 40 seconds maybe 45 seconds to get a picture from my phone to my Google Photos folder. Does anyone remember dropping film off and waiting three or four days and not having a clue what the picture was going to look like? Most of us place a very high value on comfort, but that's another sermon. Related to this, though, as I look at this passage in James and the Lewis quotes on the screen, I wonder how much of our service is driven by comfort within church and beyond, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and the world beyond. So much so that if it's not in our comfort zone, we won't even consider doing it. We say, well, that's not my gift. And that's probably accurate. But what if God enjoys our feeble attempts to serve him and his people outside of our giftedness once in a while? We have about 200 adults in the worship center this morning. At least another 100 or so who will be here at some point this year. Of those 300, we will need about 60 volunteers when we host Family Promise families in November. What if lousy cooks take the food spots? And people who are a little fearful of strangers take the social hangout spots. And what if people who love sleeping in their own beds take the overnight spots? What if? I think we would have an absolutely fabulous week. And the Holy Spirit might even offer some supernatural help in the kitchen 
and make those cots a little bit more comfortable. Or how about this? What if instead of waiting for people to sign up for all of our super, all of our service opportunities within and beyond our church, what if we randomly assigned people to those tasks, informed you where and when you were expected to serve? Some of you are out planning your transfer. (laughs) And everyone stepped into those roles as best they could. I think we might have people not so comfortable with babies do a great job in the nursery. And people not so great at making great meals make pretty good meals. And Monday night football fans packing for hand-to-hand on Monday nights and still making it home in time for the kickoff. And maybe just maybe we would have the problem of more than enough volunteers for Family Promise, kids' ministries, youth ministries, and others instead of getting by with just enough. For sure, some of the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do do relate to our gifts and are in our comfort zones. But I think at least a few of those prepared good works are not. In fact, when we follow God outside of our comfort zones, and most of us have a story to tell, we tend to pray more and learn far more about ourselves, others, and God himself. Luke describes the early church this way, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Without cars or phones, and I think without any sign-up schedules, they figured it out pretty well. James finishes our text with two Old Testament examples. The beloved patriarch of the Jewish people, Abraham, and a very interesting female outsider named Rahab. He writes, you foolish people, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. The last line speaks for itself and needs no further explanation. But I wanna go back to three words in the previous sentence. Abraham believed God. And now I'm gonna make a confession. I don't believe God, at least not as much as I should. And maybe you have the same problem. God tells us not to worry, but we worry anyway. Oswald Chambers writes, believe God is always the God you know him to be when you are nearest to him. Then think how unnecessary and disrespectful worry is. By the way, if you have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, that's something very different. There's no shame in that. Please continue to get the help that you're getting. Another way our disbelief shows up is in our unwillingness to forgive ourselves. God tells us that he has forgiven us, that our sins are as far as the east is from the west, yet we struggle to accept his forgiveness of our past mistakes. Christ took all of those sins upon himself and we don't need to carry them anymore. Believe that. 
One of many more ways we don't believe God is that we, (coughs) excuse me, uh, is that he assures us that he has a plan to prosper us, not to harm us, and that he has all our days numbered, and that he will never leave us or forsake us. Yet we hold on to too much. We overplan and fret about the 27 worst case scenarios that will likely never happen. And if one of them does, God will be faithful to get us through. St. Augustine famously said, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. We don't believe God very well. And James points out that it's our disbelief that contributes to our incomplete faith. Rather than condemn you or me from up here, though, we need to learn from the father of a boy Jesus heals. He says, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. God accepts our little faith as faith. And as we trust him, our faith grows in strength and action. Abraham's faith was not perfect, yet it grew over many years to the place where he was willing to sacrifice even his own son. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Our text closes with a second Old Testament example. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Did Rahab wake up one day thinking, hmm, rather than servicing the needs of various men today, I think instead I will hide some foreign infiltrators, lie to the local authorities, and later help the spies escape. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus will choose me to be one of his great, 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 great grandmothers someday. No. But this is what I think happened instead. Whether or not she woke up feeling any different that day, God was already at work in her heart. And when an opportunity to honor God presented itself, she took action. Two foreigners showed up, and she hid them, redirected a search party, then said to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Rahab did not go looking for an opportunity to act upon her infant faith in a God she had only heard about. But when the opportunity presented itself, she boldly took action, putting her own life at risk. For James, she is the ideal closing example, a woman with no title and a very poor reputation, whose faith was much more than an abstract belief, a woman whose faith took action. And to close the passage, James repeats his earlier conclusion, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. To summarize this short section of a much larger book In a much larger Bible, James is not saying to bless God and others through good works instead of faith in Christ or in addition to faith in Christ. Instead, James challenges the mostly Jewish early church and us today to do good works as a result 
of having faith in Christ. True faith takes action and produces good works. But let's not leave it there. Mother Teresa says if faith is lacking, it is because there is too much selfishness, too much concern for personal gain. For faith to be true, it has to be generous and loving. Love and faith go together. They complete each other. But how does that happen? If you look beneath the surface of true faith and the works that follow that James writes about, as well as the grace that initiates all of it, what is there? Love. And that is very good news. Paul writes, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Please do not leave this building today or your computer screen thinking that you have to do 57 things for others to make God happy and grow your faith on your own. Instead, know that you are loved by the God of the universe. He knows your name. He knows your strengths and your weaknesses. He knows your obvious sins and your secret sins. And he loves you so much that Jesus chose to take on flesh, die a horrible death, and overcome death itself rather than live forever without you. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, he continues to be Emmanuel, God with us. As we believe and receive that love from God, then what do we do? We follow God's example, and as his dearly loved children, we walk and live in love, even in awkward, uncomfortable, and difficult places, as Abraham and Rahab did. And what Christ did perfectly, giving himself up for us as a sacrifice to God, we do imperfectly, offering up ourselves to him in faith and in the service of others. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for waking us up this morning to the once in our lifetime gift of this day. God, help us to rejoice and to be glad in this day regardless of our circumstances. And we again pray for those in difficult circumstances, God, that you would remind them that you are Emmanuel, that you are with them, that you're in the business of getting us through floods and fires and all of the difficult things we face. God, help us to be uh, people who are madly in love with you, who take seriously your command to love you with heart and soul and mind and strength, and the people around us uh, as well. God, as you give us those opportunities, especially uncomfortable opportunities today, this week, this month, and beyond, God, help us to be faithful, not to let convenience or comfort lead us, um, but instead to uh, look to you, uh, our God who went all the way to a cross, to hell and back on our behalf. God, may we be your willing servants moving forward. We love you, and we pray in your name. Amen.